It was during the time of the Cold War. And communism and our own way of life were very much in people's minds, and he was speaking to that subject. And suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God. Welcome to The Left is Dead. I'm here with Jim and Dr. Dan McClellan. McClellan has a PhD in theology and religion from the University of Exeter and wrote the book, Yahweh's Divine Images, A Cognitive Approach. McClellan informs the public of the latest biblical scholarship by debunking bizarre myths and crazy conspiracy theories about history and the Bible on TikTok and YouTube. He co-hosts the Bible Education pod Podcast, Data Over Dogma, with atheist podcaster Daniel Beecher. Welcome to The Left is Dead. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. All right. So we were going to start with uh, debunking pseudo-history online. Yeah. Uh, your academic work applying cognitive sciences to the study of religious phenomenon emphasizes the human capacity of pattern recognition as an aspect of all social phenomena, uh, mm -hmm. including ideas of deity and real and imagined agencies. Um, this pattern recognition also runs amok in how people read the Bible and ancient history. And it seems like there's a lot of misinfo and maybe even disinfo about the meaning of the Bible and its application to today. So I wanted to ask you, yeah. as a public online intellectual, uh, what patterns have you been seeing in these pattern recognitions run amok and why why what patterns are you seeing this is a sort of a Rorschach test kind of question but yeah. yeah well I think uh one of the things that I noticed as I got deeper and deeper into the cognitive sciences and particularly the cognitive science of religion is is how much everything comes back to uh everybody's kind of intuitive drive to feel good about themselves about their worldviews and then about the social identities that are important to them. And so in all of the discourse and debates that, that I see online and on the media and elsewhere, a lot of it really boils down to, in very predictable and repeated ways, uh, people trying to protect that sense that they are good, that their worldview is good, and that their social identities are good. And so we have people kind of retreating to these uh, these battle lines over social identities, uh, and that's prioritized over a lot of the principles that are ostensibly driving those social identities. And um, and and one of the ones that kind of uh, most explicitly jumps out at me, an example, is um, I remember the uh, the Clinton uh, Clinton administration in the nineties. I remember Monica Lewinsky, that whole thing. I remember conservatives getting rightfully apoplectic about someone, about a, a sitting president committing adultery in the White House. And this was somebody who uh, was uh, abusing their power 
uh, leveraging their power over a subordinate for uh, sexual favors. And I remember the uh, the repeated refrain was, uh, someone who will cheat on their wife will cheat on the country, that that is just wildly inappropriate, unacceptable. That person cannot be in power. And then fast forward to 2016, and then the same group of people, overwhelmingly, a lot of new folks, it's you know almost 20 years, so a lot of new folks are in the picture, but the same group of people have suddenly, because now they're on the other side of this issue, suddenly... It's okay to have someone who cheats on their wife in the presidency, since we're not electing a pastor, we're electing a president, a leader. Uh, and so this is an example of, of people who insist that they're driven by principles, but those principles are entirely negotiable. If our structuring of power is uh, at stake, then we're happy to negotiate those principles so that uh, we maintain that power. And so that that's one of the most explicit examples I, I recall seeing that that is kind of uh, from uh, the broader uh, American kind of public discourse. But we have a lot of examples of this. I live in Utah, where our uh, state legislature is always busy structuring power in favor of, of their needs and where uh, the they assert principles, but behind the scenes, the discussions are always about maintaining power. And, th and that's a pattern that uh, you can see all over the place. And people get upset when I say, well, this is motivated by this, um, that, you know, you're not allowed to read my mind. You don't know what's going on. And it's like, well, there are decades and decades of empirical studies and data that indicate most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, this is what's driving these kinds of arguments. Uh, and so that's a pattern that, um, that after, after learning, I've seen all over the place, and not just on the right, it's on all sides of this. And uh, in a lot of the um, social media content that I produce, I'm engaging frequently with folks who are not on the right, are, are not conservative by any stretch of the imagination, but similarly are very easily um, leaping to conclusions that serve their perception of what power structures need to be um, curated in what ways. So it's on all sides. I think the larger threat is coming from right-wing authoritarianism in our country at this time. And so that is usually the focus of what I'm doing. But those patterns uh, pop up everywhere in so many places. Um, I want to ask, like, what do you think drives, you know, the knowledge of, like, say, people who love the Book of Enoch when they first discover it or something like <laughs> yeah. that? Or, you know, about which books made the Bible, by who in the Vatican, you know, a lot yeah. of conspiracies around that. What do you think drives the more outlandish ones? Do you think this is a desire for esoteric knowledge or is there something else behind it? I, I think that's a big part of it. I think um, and that kind of thing increases as instability increases when people feel like there is less stability in the world around them and they don't have control you start to see an escalation in the degree to which people are willing to accept more outlandish things as an explanation for what's going on because people want to feel like they have a grip on the world and how it's running and so sometimes it is uh things are just not going their way and so they're they're going to reach further to try to find an explanation that will make them feel like they know what's going on and and there's 
I think there's also a degree to which people want to feel like they have insider knowledge, that they know something that everybody else doesn't know, that esoteric knowledge that you referenced. Uh, and I also think there is there are a lot of people these days who want to feel that it's a big conspiracy, that people are hiding information from other people, that uh, the powers that be are lying to everybody and that this is all a huge cover-up, a huge lie. I think that makes the world feel a little more like it makes sense to them and a little bit more like, aha, this is what I, this is how I expect things to be. And so it's uh, to some degree, it's confirmation bias regarding their worldview, regarding their understanding of how the world works. Like for instance, um, and, and this isn't really related to Book of Enoch or anything like that, which, um, yeah, giants, I don't know why there are so many people who really want to believe that there are giants hiding out in caves in Kandahar, and every last member of the army somehow knows about this, but it still is always, I knew a guy who knew a guy. Um, it's never firsthand information. But and it doesn't seem to be just religious people either about the yeah diets. yeah yeah uh, the you have atheists who who are are happy to um jump to those conclusions if it helps them make sense of the world in a way that has them in a position of knowledge if not power um and and i think a a, a lot of people want the world to to function in a way where well a good example is the uh, the kennedy assassination I think a lot of people just did not want to believe that some rando could just assassinate the president of the United States, just make a decision. And with all of the protection that we have, with everything that goes into ensuring that the leader of the most powerful nation on earth is safe, some rando could just decide to assassinate him and overturn the world. That is terrifying. And so I think a lot of people find comfort in thinking that this goes so much deeper and there are so many more people uh, who are pulling strings because that makes it feel like we are a little more stable. It takes an entire huge network of very, very powerful people to make something like this happen because just some dude who happened to um, be good at shooting a rifle in the army uh, just upending the Western world is was frightening to an awful lot of people. I think those explanations are also just boring is what the problem is. They don't <laughs> yeah. like them. They don't like, you know, it's not exciting to say like there's regulatory capture or something yeah. like that. Like, you know, and to it, talk about why Amazon, Amazon is a monopoly or whatever you want. It's always, there has to be something more to this. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things that comes up a lot in the in the stuff that I do, because one of the things I have to do, unfortunately, is break the news to people that sometimes it's as boring as they just made this up there. We don't know why it was just fiction, like the, the ages of the patriarchs. I made a video release. I have gotten so many questions about that. Finally, I made a video about it and I'm like, it's just fiction and there's no deeper symbolism to this. And so many people just refuse to accept that. It just does not compute for them that these are just kind of more or less random ages that are just made up. So um, they want the world to be more special than that, more stable than that. They want there to be more meaning behind everything. And, and that's another thing that I think drives a lot of the desire to try to make up all these things about the ancient world. Like people talk about the... Um, 
the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if a, a man compel you to go a mile with him, go the second mile. Or if a man sue you for your um, shirt, give him your cloak also. They're like, ah, this is all this secret kind of subterfuge where there were these laws anciently that uh, it was, uh, you know, if you gave them the cloak in court, then you were now nude. And so they were forcing you to, to break the law. And, and people are making up all this stuff. There's absolutely no evidence for any of this. But it injects those stories that are otherwise kind of boring. Yeah, it's just hyperbole. They're just saying you should be really, really um, deferential and nice to other people. That's boring. But if it's this way to undercut the, the power structures of the day, then it becomes a lot more interesting. And so people are willing to latch onto that and uh, jump to conclusions to have that additional meaning in the text. That's really interesting. I, I didn't. I, I haven't heard you speak about the giving the cloak or going uh, the extra mile or whatever it was. I'm not remembering, but um, that's really interesting because I'm usually more familiar with the uh, civil rights era interpretation of that. I'm not remembering specific names, but there was interpretations of those, those same verses that this was somehow social protest against Roman regulations. Yeah. I never looked into it, whether it be <laughs> historically accurate or not. Yeah. I don't know. But that makes that makes the stories resonate a lot more with the circumstances of the readers. And if they can create that resonance and then it becomes a lot more important, it is more meaningful and it's more useful. And you're going to be a lot more willing to latch on to that conclusion where if I just say. They were just being hyperbolic. They were just saying, hey, man, you should be even more forgiving, even more patient, even more this. They're like, man, that's. That's kind of boring. That doesn't really do anything for us. All right, really interesting. Well, do you see any of this like misinfo or disinfo causing or at least participating in like social problems? Like, is this stuff like harmless misinfo or is it potentially politically or socially or otherwise dangerous? Like the anti-Semitism of some of the stuff, some of the defenses of ancient and even modern slavery that comes up among Southern, some Southern Baptists, not all. What do you think? Uh, I think it can be phenomenally harmful when there are uh, struggles over power between powerful groups and minoritized, marginalized, oppressed groups. Uh, I think if people can uh, spread misinformation like this, it helps people um, kind of embed themselves even more in in their side of, of these power struggles. And so when that happens on the side of the privileged and powerful groups, it just makes it more difficult for the other side to get a fair shake. And so when it comes to defending slavery, uh, the fact that a lot of um, conservative Christian, particularly evangelical readers of the Bible are willing to kind of overlook and apologize for and domesticate and um, all these things. The slavery in the Bible makes it that much easier to accept like curricula in public schools where they have a white guy voicing a an animated uh, Frederick Douglass who is apologizing for slavery and saying, oh, it's okay. This was all, hey, and then they have uh, Christopher Columbus saying, well, better to be a slave than to be dead. Um, that kind of uh, massaging and curating how we understand the past goes hand in hand with this misinformation. 
And, uh, and unfortunately, the more religious people tend to be, at least, and particularly when it comes to evangelical Christianity, and particularly white evangelical Christianity, the more susceptible people are to misinformation, to disinformation, to conspiracy theories. And, you know, you might be, you might have somebody who's very happy to accept all these conspiracy theories about political stuff, but that that's going to leak into it's going to bleed into how, uh, or they're accepting conspiracy theories about religious stuff. That is going to bleed into, and that's going to influence their susceptibility to conspiracy theories about uh, political stuff as well. Particularly if they all point in the same direction, in this direction of conservative white men have it the worst, everybody's out to get us kind of stuff, which uh, is something that you see all over the place. Or uh, the Jewish people are out to get us and they rule the world and, and all that kind of stuff. Or they're not even the real Jewish people. They're imposters who come, who descend from the Khazar um, converts to Judaism. That kind of stuff is, is just incredibly harmful. And, um, and yeah, the more of it you see the, well, the, the more someone is willing to accept that kind of stuff in one arena, the more they're going to accept it in another. They've all turned themselves into like Turkish nationalists somehow. Which is very interesting. <laughs> well, or, or Russian nationalists. Yeah, yeah. Now, now we have Russia saying, hey, evangelical Christians, we'll help you set up a theocracy over here. And, this, and yeah, uh, the very absurd idea that they're the Western power of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, some, yeah. yeah. we're the your whole, friends. <laughs> yeah, the whole difference is like, no, the buddy, the whole thing is they're on the east side of this. Like, this has always been like this. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think it's very interesting. Yeah, you mentioned like, you know, the sort of Prager U sort of. Um, curriculum that they're putting in schools and stuff like that it's very interesting how much that even biblical scholarship is really declined up among far-right evangelicals now you know i think that's yeah. i always joke about this but i'd say that this is the reason you see us catholics on the supreme court is because we're the ones who read you know we're the ones who actually <laughs> study stuff and i think yeah. that you sort of lack that in like the right-wing evangelicals do you think that there's an effort to just sort of dumb down this the biblical teachings to the sort of lowest common denominator and whatever helps you like you said earlier, feel the best about your position. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a, a degree to which there is kind of an anti-intellectualism that serves the interests of particularly uh, right-wing evangelical Christianity. That there's, is, uh, yeah, there's no William F. Buckley. Like Charlie Kirk is no William F. Buckley or something like yeah, that. You know, yeah. and and I think a lot of this stems from these campaigns that began in the late '60s, early '70s to try to gin up a, a religious right and rally them around uh, opposition to abortion, which they suddenly decided that's going to make a handy rally cry uh, because white supremacy was not going to be a handy rallying cry. Uh, and then you have the uh, the NRA being taken over by extremists in seventy-seven. Peach Earl Warren back in the day, yeah, yeah, and the opposition to uh, the Equal Rights Amendment and all of this. These became such uh, embedded as such important identity markers, uh, and but they're just you can't really agree with that side of things if you get well enough <laughs> informed about them. So I, I, I have not looked into um how uh, the role of of public schools and things like that i mean once you have desegregation you have uh no the parents ought to be in charge of the public schools and now we've got all these private schools popping up and so there's a lot of private school charter school homeschool ideologies that are for some reason well for a clear reason 
uh, you have a lot of uh, evangelical Christians kind of congregating around those those ideologies, which which means that they are not getting educated frequently to the level of, that uh, people used to. And so, yeah, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting thought on that. The anti-intellectualism kind of helps their structuring of power, which is an unfortunate way to uh to go about doing that yeah it's gonna make for a rough future i think it is it is i i am worried about the future if they continue to um hold power the way they have since the since the late 70s early 80s yeah i i don't want to we'll probably talk about that in a, a later in this interview but uh I want to go ahead to your more academic work, which I do think is yeah. very relevant for modern politics and whatnot. Um, but uh, before that, I want to ask you about Data Over Dogma, your podcast yeah. Uh, yeah. with uh, Dan Beecher. Wonderful podcast, very engaging. I think I've oh, listened to almost all of them. And I haven't even listened to all of them. So that's, that's impressive. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> you made them. <laughs> I, I used to... I used to um, see like actors be like oh i never watch my movies i'm like mm. that's dumb and now i'm like <laughs> i get it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i was there i don't need to go uh watch myself and be like good so sorry <laughs> i interrupted you no no you're fine you're fine that, that's great um but yeah i just want to ask you like doing the tiktok debunking and doing the questions with beecher and also having interviews with other academics for a public audience um mm -hmm. how has this influenced your socially mediated engagements with the bible because as you become more of a popular public intellectual that seems you're socially mediated in a different way and your own academic work emphasizes social mediation of biblical interpretation so i wondered if this has changed maybe how you've read and communicated the bible it has definitely forced me into trying to be more of a generalist, where now when I'm looking at, at books that are coming out and scholarship I want to read, now I'm like, I need to read more widely. I need to um, consume scholarship that's addressing things that normally wouldn't have interested me uh, in, my, uh, in the, the stuff that I research. And so I, I think the need to be able to speak in an informed way about the academic consensuses and about what's out there uh, uh, has expanded the scope of my research interests. And so I'm becoming more of a generalist, which is a big challenge. And so it has kind of slowed me down a little bit. I haven't had as much time. Normally, all my research is focused on the stuff I want to write on. And now I'm finding myself having to kind of get to know stuff, not because it's going to inform anything I produce academically, but so that I can uh, speak to a broader range of, of topics and questions on social media. So, so that is kind of, a, uh, like I said, that has kind of slowed down my production of, of actual academic scholarship. I'm still, I still have some deadlines and th some things I am working on, but, um, I'm, I'm definitely, I don't, I definitely have fewer, uh, articles and books in the pipeline than, um, I would at this point. So, uh, I think it is, and, and I think that's a good thing. I think that makes it so I can, 
um, teach a little more broadly uh, and be aware of a lot more of what's going on out there and and maybe find some things that interest me a lot more than I, I would have thought. And so maybe my uh, my scholarship that I'm producing for an academic audience branches out in, into other ways. I mean, I really appreciate that. Like another very on uh, the late Michael Heiser, who was a very online public intellectual about the Southwest Asia, ancient Near East, uh, uh, biblical literature. I really appreciated how he engaged biblical studies with stuff like UFOs and <laughs> neo-paganism. He, he yeah. t- talks about speaking with a, a, a modern day worshiper, Zeus and whatnot. And it just was a new way to engage the Bible via present day popular culture. And I see that in your media production too. Yeah, that's, uh, I, th- I think my, I remember when um, I heard about Mike's Naked Bible podcast, I was like, biblical studies and UFOs, huh? Um, I, I thought that was, that was peculiar, but yeah, it is, it is a way to kind of engage what little overlap there is in, in that kind of discourse and, and the biblical scholarship. And I don't know if that was because he started engaging people who were interested in that. And they were like, talk about this, talk about this. And, and he saw an audience um, that he could um, gain by um, by talking about that, or if that was just kind of always a, a pet project of his, always an interest of his on the side. But yeah, I, definitely the whole ancient alien stuff and the Anunnaki and the, the giants and a lot of the stuff that comes out of First Enoch is stuff that I have paid a lot more attention than I ever wanted to pay to it um, since getting into uh, <laughs> public scholarship. Um, and and yeah, there, there are a handful of ways that I've kind of waded into debates that I didn't really know about before, but have since become um, probably far too uh, uh, committed to and invested in uh, since then, particularly uh, a lot of the stuff having to do with the Kazarian hypothesis and and all of that kind of stuff is something two years ago I would have known absolutely nothing about. Uh, so it's 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 fun to be exposed to a lot of the different corners of of this kind of discourse. And um, I'm going to let's see in a little over a month uh, we'll have Comic Con here in Salt Lake City. Uh, and so I'm going all three days of that. I'm looking forward to that uh, a great deal. But I also know I'm going to run into a lot of people there. Um, and I'm going to meet a lot of new people and be exposed to a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of new things just because uh, that's that kind of comes with the territory. So I didn't have a chance to talk with Mike about how he decided to wed those two interests on his uh, on his podcast. But um yeah, I'm sure that'll find its way into the Data Over Dogma podcast uh, at some point. We'll start running out of guests and and <laughs> ideas, and have to start branching out into uh, into Kandahar Giants and uh, well, uh, and things like that. I have a question. I think that you know we talk about the Book of Enoch, and we talk about you know obviously the Old Testament laws and things like that. But it, are there more rampant like misinterpretations of the Book of Mormon, for example, because it's so it's so much more fresh i suppose it's a newer book obviously and like the the room for interpretation seems much more limited because the church is so solid and has been since the beginning 
mm-hmm. are there sort of like conspiracies around the Book of Mormon or around the, the Church of Latter-day Saints or anything like that comparable yeah, to there, the Vatican? There are. There well, are some some interesting factions that have, have uh, developed and gone off on their own regarding a, a handful of different things in the Book of Mormon and different theories about the Book of Mormon. For instance, there's... I will say I know about Beaver Island up here, where we had the, yeah. the breakaway up here, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's a group that um, that has a theory that the Book of Mormon took place in a specific area of the United States. Uh, and so they've associated different locations mentioned in the text with locations in the Midwest. Uh, and so that has gone from people who share this theory of the origins of the Book of Mormon to people who have become in in some ways almost a breakaway group where they share specific ideologies, not only about where the Book of Mormon comes from, but also where the United States should be going. Uh, and some of those people are heavily invested in uh, conspiracy theories that begin with the letter Q and stuff like that. So um, there's a there is that kind of stuff associated with yeah, the we've, of Mormon. We've talked extensively on like Operation Underground Railroad and a couple of things like that. Yeah, we were, yeah. and I I think Utah is very interesting to us because it's the home of like these fintech companies now and like um, MLMs seem to flourish in utah these things (laughs) that are very strange because you're used to such an atomized community among regular churchgoers um Mm -hmm. as far as other denominations go it's strange to see almost a whole state organized along the lines of this church so yeah it's it's interesting to hear that there are like breakaways and i hear it is much different when you're not in the metropole of mormonism in utah and say you're a mormon in michigan or whatever like i hear it's a much different experience it is but the internet has also made it so you can find your tribe yeah. If true. you if if there's there's a group that that um, pops up in Utah and particularly in southern Utah, you have a lot of preppers. You have a lot of folks in southern Utah who uh, who accrete around the, some of these conspiracy theories. Uh, and someone in Michigan can, you know, get interested in that um, through the Internet. And um, so there are they do have a, a lot of satellite groups that uh, that can join their their factions and. Uh, we have folks who uh, have tried to make movies about Captain Moroni, and they kind of use this story from the middle of the Book of Mormon um, as a way to kind of reflect on contemporary uh, politics in the United States and, and you know, shine through a, uh, a lens about the revolutionary period and the founders and stuff like that. And, and the founder of um, Operation Underground Railroad has written books right, about, about that include these mm-hmm. conspiracy theories and things like that. So it is interesting um, to see it be much more accepted since like 2012 with like Romney and like Glenn Beck becoming the first, like I think, popular like Mormon personalities as far mm-hmm. as politics goes. But yeah, it seems like it's fully integrated now as long as you just don't ask questions about what they believe <laughs> well, like they and, can all be it's like being a catholic you can be in the coalition just don't ask questions and and romney's a bad guy in the yeah, eyes of, of uh, a lot of these folks now who are, are pushing mormonism further to the right and we just had uh a 75 year old man who was uh killed by the fbi two days ago here in yeah I, I saw that it's very interesting um, that Sort of like the power structure, obviously, I think I feel like Mitt Romney is much more integrated in the actual power structure of the church, probably due to his wealth. Whereas, you know, the same here where you may be much more integrated within the Catholic Church or something like that. But 
that's sort of discounted because the more extreme fringes like a Michael Flynn or a Tim Ballard or whoever they get picked up and it's like we just don't talk about the Pope or we don't talk about Salt Lake City or anything like that like as long as we don't bring that up we can be in a coalition it seems strange to me that there's a lot more coalition building around people who would rather kill each other you know were this some yeah. type of like other situation but now they're willing to work with each other you know if you can be a catholic as long as you say like vatican ii wasn't real or whatever you know yeah yeah well and that's and that's where you're subordinating the 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 principles to the identity politics and so you're you're um kind of um gathering around drawing boundaries around folks who are in different spots when it comes to the theology but are in but share an ideology when it comes to the um the politics and that's and this is something that uh within the study of within the broader study of religion, scholars have, have been pointing out for a long time, the distinction of politics and religion is a largely artificial one that was created during, between the Renaissance Reformation and Enlightenment. You kind of took culture and split it apart into private religion and public politics. And they're really not so easily separated, which is why a lot of these folks um, are operating at the intersection of the two. And, and so I, I think that's, that's a problem to try to maintain the distinction between the two. Uh, it's, it's a modern artificial one. And, you know, within scholarship, a lot of people try to impose that distinction on the ancient world and on the Bible. And that's even further afield because they absolutely had no concept of two separate dimensions like that uh, anciently. Yeah, that, that's fascinating about like, we can't even define what religion is. We can't distinguish religious from non-religious phenomena. Um, <laughs> so about your book in yeah. 2022, Yahweh's Divine Images, A Cognitive Approach, you apply the quote, cognitive science of religion to explain the relationships between Adonai, other Old Testament gods, divine entities, messengers of God, living and dead prophets and ancestors, and also uh, artifacts, cultic objects, like the altars, thrones, tombs, texts, phrases. So, okay, why and how did you apply cognitive sciences to understanding the Bible? It seems like two yeah. different things, but it actually tells <laughs> very surprisingly well. I think so, yeah. And um, it started with my second master's degree. I came back from Oxford. Uh, I moved up to a uh, tiny little, not tiny, a little town uh, called Bellingham in Washington state, just south of the border. Gorgeous town. I love it so much, but I would commute across the border to Langley, BC to Trinity Western University. I wanted to write my master's thesis there on the development of the concept of monotheism. And I was starting out with, okay, well, what is monotheism? And it had something to do with gods. And so I set out to try to figure out how I was going to understand the concept of a God. And I just could not find scholarship that had settled the question or addressed the question in a way that I was comfortable with. Everything I looked at was like, that doesn't really work in my mind. It, it's, I felt like there were a lot of assumptions that were being made. And I was at a school that was ha that happened to be connected with what was called the Canada Institute of Linguistics, and I had a friend there named Mike Aubrey, who's a, who's a linguist. And I learned about cognitive linguistics uh, just in the course of study and research for my uh, master's thesis. 
And uh, I learned about prototype theory, which is this theory that was developed within psychology way back in the 70s that has to do with how the human mind kind of creates and maintains and uses categories. And the more I learned about cognitive linguistics, the more I thought, this is very intuitive. And this explains why all this scholarship talking about what a god is seems wrong to me. Like, the things that I was learning in cognitive linguistic were exposing why the arguments that I thought were problematic were problematic. And so things started to fall into place. And I realized that a prototype theory might help us better understand when they used the word God back then, what were they talking about? Because we use, we try to use definitions today, but the, the notion of definitions and the widespread use of definitions is modern it's incredibly modern. It is not something that they used in the ancient world. And so prototype theory and cognitive linguistics gets underneath all of that and says, this is how the human mind, independent of the philosophies and the frameworks that we impose on how we talk about these things, this helps to explain what's going on in the actual online usage. And so my master's thesis there was the conceptualization of deity in the Hebrew Bible through the methodological lens of cognitive linguistics. And so I was like, a deity is whatever they call the deity, full stop. And so let's go look at what they call a deity. And the text calls a number of different things deities. It calls what we would understand as kind of a conventional deity deities. It calls people deities. It calls certain objects deities. It calls divine images deities. And so the goal of that master's thesis was to kind of explore the contours and the fuzzy boundaries of this concept of deity and get it a closer understanding of what they meant when they used that word. And then when I got into my uh, doctoral research, I wanted to expand that I had stumbled across the cognitive science of religion in working in cognitive linguistics and saw that not only were they applying cognitive sciences to how language works, they were applying it to what it is that is going on in our minds uh, to produce what we have labeled religion. And I thought, ah, that might be incredibly handy in trying to better understand not just what they mean by the concept of deity, but how they interact with the concept of deity. And so my, my doctoral dissertation was on deity and divine agency, and divine agency was, was kind of a, um, a theoretical framework for understanding how divine images work. And as I started trying to apply these theories to divine images, I noticed that what was going on with divine images is very similar to what's going on with interactions with the deceased, even down to today like the way someone might go to a cemetery and speak to the headstone of a deceased loved one, that is like cognitively, that's the exact same phenomenon that might compel somebody to go into a temple and speak to a divine image that looks exactly like many headstones look today as if they're speaking to the actual deity. And so I, I saw connections, a lot of overlap in a lot of these features um, when you applied the, the lenses of, uh, the cognitive science of religion. And it just like, I got really excited about how much this potentially could explain 
about not just divine images in the Hebrew Bible, but you know the the big question there is why are did the ancient people refer to the divine images as if they were the gods themselves while also kind of acknowledging that they are not the gods themselves? And I noticed that that's the exact same problem of early Christology. Why are Christians referring to Jesus as if he is God themselves? And also acknowledging that Jesus is not God themselves. And so um, the appendix of my book kind of says, hey, this has application to the study of early Christology. And that's one of those things that's kind of intuitive subconscious. It's guiding the how people are engaging with this when they're not thinking about why they're engaging with it. And then a lot of the later philosophical stuff is an attempt to look back and say, why are we doing that? Oh, well, here's a philosophical explanation. Um, and that's where I'm arguing in a book that I'm working on right now. That's where the idea of the Trinity comes from, is saying, we're doing weird stuff back here. We have to come up with an explanation for why. And the explanation for why has more to do with Greco-Roman philosophical frameworks than any actual understanding of the cognitive underpinnings of those phenomena. So I'm working on that book right now, but the appendix in the Adonai's Divine Images book is kind of uh, pointing in that direction. I, I don't know if it was a good idea to include that appendix or just, I don't know if I gave away the, uh, the, uh, uh, the farm there, but. Uh, well, that I, I did think you were, you had a project on uh, Christology coming up after reading that appendix. I was like, okay, <laughs> this is where it's headed. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. 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 That was something that it, it, I didn't start out with that idea, but as I got into it, I was, you know, the light bulb went off and I was like, that's the exact same thing going on in, in early Christology. So I was very excited to stumble across something that's um, an idea that was somewhat related to some of the work going on in the study of early Christology, but is an entirely new path to forge. And so uh, a lot of people who get into biblical studies, and I felt this way when I was an undergrad, are like, what am I going to add to a conversation that's been going on for 2,000 years that has included some of the most intelligent people that have ever existed? Um, it's it, it's very intimidating, but this, uh, I think, is, uh, is has been a way for me to kind of find something new to say. So I'm very excited about um, about that. Well, the I don't thing, even know if I answered your question or not, but no, you, no, you wound me up, so I had to go. Yeah, we're asking broad questions just to hear what you come up with. We never know okay. what we're going to see. So, like, what's interesting about that, though, is that so prototype theory is kind of like a criticism of Aristotelian sort of theories of naming and meaning, but Christianity kind of adopts either Platonic or Aristotelian ways of naming things and assigning definitions to things. So there's a weird historiographical um, change because like your book criticizes the thing that comes into Aristotelianism, which comes into Christianity and tries to define divinity. But your approach is going before that happens, which is weird to me. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it is that um, that attempt to apply Aristotelian frameworks is serving those attempts to structure power like they're they're not they're not introspecting they're not taking these frameworks and saying we're now going to consider what's going on they're taking those frameworks and saying how can we make this thing work for us and and so it goes back to that intuitive drive 
to protect our identity politics and our structuring of power. And I would argue that that's what they're imposing those frameworks to do. And so they're still being guided by those, those intuitive cognitive uh, frameworks that I am kind of chasing after, even as they're um, imposing the, those things that I'm criticizing as I'm chasing after them. Um, but yeah, it is, it can get complex quite uh, easy. And, and sometimes I have to stay, take a step back and be like, I got to make sure I have the math right, that I'm on the right side of, of what, I'm, what I'm thinking about. But um, well, I, that goes right into our next question, which is like, yeah. it seems like this prototype theory that argues that maybe there are not inherent meanings in the Bible regarding divinity or other things. It seems to have political implications for present day modernity too. What, yeah. what do you think about that? I, I think absolutely it does. We live in a time where you have Congress people challenging other people to define woman. And, and, you know, part of my book is that conceptual categories cannot be defined in an analytically useful um, or critical way. And that definitions primarily serve attempts to structure power. Uh, and so because uh, definitions overwhelmingly are attempts to draw boundaries and to say on this side, we're in on that side, we're out and draw clear binaries. And that's just not how the mind creates, learns or uses conceptual categories. And so it is distorting how we use and understand those words in an effort to try to say, um, you know, things like, oh, if a woman is this, then you can't have trans women. And so trans women are deluded. Trans women don't exist. Trans women shouldn't have rights. All that kind of stuff is at stake with these asinine attempts to demand that people define woman. Nobody can define woman in a way that exactly matches its usage. And so, I mean, the, the, the best you can do is a woman is any entity that is understood to be a woman or is labeled a woman. And we have it with racism as well. That's something that I've been talking about for a long time online. If, if, um, if power asymmetries, if uh, directionality is a necessary and sufficient feature of racism, then you cannot be racist against white people in a contemporary Eurocentric society. And so if that's a necessary and sufficient feature of our understanding of racism, then that has significant impact on the public discourse because there is so much of a defense of white supremacy that relies on being able to accuse people of being racist against white people. Uh, and I've argued that historically, if you look at the usage of the word racism, it always referred to a more powerful group against a less powerful group. And then we get into the civil rights movement, and then they invent this concept of reverse racism, which is kind of trying to leverage the, the impact of the accusation of racism on behalf of white people. And then they move to just saying, no, we're just going to call it regular racism. And dictionary definitions didn't help at all because they're kind of genericizing it and they're committing the etymological fallacy. Um, and that, that influences the way um, uh, power structures are, are curated. And, I, and one, one I get in trouble with on, online, I talk about it every now and then, uh, I think a lot of people think I'm trying to score a bit of an own goal, uh, the way that atheism 
is defined. A lot of people are very concerned for defining atheism as just an absence of belief in deity, which is a very new way to define the word and is also entangled with attempts to structure power. Because if that's what atheism is, then there is something to the argument that all humans are born atheist and that atheism is kind of the default setting of all humanity. And that would make religiosity, that would make theism the departure, that would make that the um, the innovation, the, the something different. And so there are a lot of people who deploy that definition so as to structure power um, largely over and against uh, the power of theistic groups. And so um, I that's one of the, the things I bring up that gets me in the most trouble with the folks who normally like my content. <laughs> Well, that's really funny. Dan Beecher's other podcast is Thank God I'm Atheist. Yeah. Which is like, it's not so clear cut, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and, I, and I've made some videos about um, how the usage of that word has changed throughout time. Uh, but that's that's another part of how we are we curate meaning, whether it's our understanding of words like uh, what a sandwich is or, uh, you know, if a hot dog is a sandwich, which is uh, kind of a less serious one, but... We're always uh, we're always negotiating uh, with these uh, words, whether they're all by themselves or in a Bible or in a constitution or or whatever. So, yeah, unfortunately, sometimes I get myself into trouble with <laughs> with my own audience uh, trying to pursue those um, uh, that research. It's really interesting, really interesting. Um, well, um... I was going to get into under the banner of heaven discussions yeah. that you had. Um, just real quick, I'll, I'll give a summary of this. Uh, this could be a broad topic. I don't want, we don't want to take too much more of your time or anything. But uh, so in 2003, uh, John Krakauer had published his book Under the Banner of Heaven, A Story of Violence, Faith. The book juxtaposed a story about the origins and evolution of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the 1984 double homicide by the self-described Mormon fundamentalists, Ron and Dan Lafferty. Yeah. The book argued that Mormonism was inherently fundamentalist and thus violent. Uh, in 2022, after Hulu adapted the book into a miniseries, you and anthropologist Brad Kramer hosted a series of five discussions with other Mormons, critically analyzing the series association of Mormonism with violence in the wake of 9-11 and a national security state profiling Muslims and other religiously affiliated individuals. Yeah. So I thought this discussion series was fascinating. You and Kramer brought in a lot of rigorous theory and genre analysis to figure out what this series was doing in relation to the book and how it was portraying uh, Mormons. And I think your criticisms of um, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, how they talked about religion as being associated with violence. Mm -hmm. um, I thought all that was fascinating. I was just wanted to ask you, how do you think popular perceptions of Mormons may have changed since this 2022 series? Do, have you seen any trends since then? I don't know that I've uh, I've seen much of a change. However, I think folks like Tim Ballard and others who have uh, who have uh, moved closer to the center of of some spotlights, uh, I think have have kind of shown that there's 
a a uh, a right wing authoritarian faction within Mormonism that is, uh, but rather than being something that's uh, like evangelical Christians and and kind of mainstream Christians feel kind of disgusted by, which is frequently how they think about Mormons. These are folks that they would probably largely agree with. I, I think there are some ways that um, that some Mormons are kind of hitching their wagon to uh, even more firmly to some of the evangelical um, religious politics uh, that are going on. I think uh, Romney was is now far too moderate for a lot of uh, evangelicals and also for a lot of Mormons. And, uh, and I don't think that our uh, our politics here in Utah and what's going on with like CRT and what's going on with uh, with the trans uh, debate that has uh, bubbled to the surface since then. I don't think that's been incredibly helpful. So I, I think there's a there's a sense in which a lot of uh, the Mormon public discourse, particularly as it relates to politics, has has taken an even harder turn to the right. Um, but in terms of of theologically. I don't know that I've I've sensed much of a change. Uh, I think I think there are groups on the right that are starting to kind of uh, decide to overlook some theological stuff. If this helps us to bring a, a larger population of people into the fold and and helps the cause, um, because I, around the time of Romney, you did have folks speaking out saying, "Remember, these are these are heretics. These people are not real Christians," and I, I think I see that less in the political sphere today than than we did ten years ago. So, yeah, that that's it's not a, a question I've directly asked myself since then, though. So, so that's that's just kind of off the top of my head trying to remember. It's uh, really tricky. Yeah. Question. Yeah. I mean, like when you compared it to True Detective season one, which involves the Southern Baptist Convention and implies that uh, there is human trafficking conspiracy among institutions in the Southern Baptist Convention back then. Of course, since then, the Southern Baptist Convention has had a series of um, abuse and assault scandals. They had a secret database of uh, real and acute, well, not real and acute, sorry. Um, accused and also criminally charged offenders yeah. of sexual abuse and what. So what was interesting, your comparison of un the TV show under the banner of heaven with season one, true detective. I thought that was really interesting because there are ways in which the nationwide de uh, depictions and stereotypes about Mormons are more excessive than they would be with Southern Baptists. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. I, I think they're, we're used to Southern Baptists a lot more. They've been in the spotlight a lot longer, and they do kind of, I, I think, sit a little closer to um, to the average, to the mean. And so they don't stand out as much. And so people don't have to caricature them as much. I, I think with Mormonism, you do. I felt that was one of the parts of the series that was a little strained. Like someone who wasn't a Mormon at all um, would be like, man, that. You know, there, there could be a whole bunch of dialogue and you could say the way they said that one thing very clearly was intended to send a message that this is weird and different. And so, like, it was just so on the nose in a lot of ways that I felt it was a caricature 
that they really had to try hard to, to get across. Um, but yeah, people aren't, aren't as familiar with Mormonism. I think that's the thing that stands out though, is like there are certain churches that require you do actual work in order to, you know, prove faithfulness. And that's, that's something that's easily accessible in like the Southern Baptist is you don't have to do much, you know, you accept the political ideology and the sort of religious teachings. It's the almost Calvinist type of perspective yeah. on things. Whereas, you know, if you're here and your life is good, there's obviously a reason for this. You know, I think that, do you think that people are going to sort of rub up the wrong way against Mormonism because it actually requires them to do work to, you know, <laughs> provide well, that they're doing something for their faith or, I mean, because that seems to be a real struggle in the U S I think. Well, the, and the Southern Baptist Convention, I mean, there's a hierarchy to some degree, but it's not nearly as centralized as it is within Mormonism. And so within Mormonism, there is more of a, uh, there are clearer lines that are drawn around things. Uh, and so I think, I think a lot of that sits a little closer to the surface and um, it's easier to pick out the identity markers uh, than it is. With yeah, I think like that the SBC. The ability to caricature them is like so ripe for, you know, obviously Hollywood or like anyone to do because there's a lot different from in just the idea of, well, I'm in a truck and I'm taking my six kids to the church with the coffee shop in it and everything yeah, like yeah. that. You know, there's a lot more <laughs> commitment to an ideological idea or like some seed of ideological faith than there is in any type of like Protestant church. But yeah, well, I think, I, and I watched, I'm all set, Nathan. I, I watched the, the Righteous Gemstones recently, which was... Uh, yes. Like I, I thought that was hilarious. I think they went, they they went too far uh, in some things in in that right. show. Um, but uh, I don't. Did they ever identify their denomination specifically? Like it strikes I me as very Southern Baptist, but but I don't really know they, uh, the SBC well enough. They're really just a sort of kind of generic shadow of the Falwells, I think. Yeah, okay. they're, they're kind of, pet of yeah. Well, they're charismatic, but not Pentecostal, but they seem to have Pentecostals in there. And there are also Pentecostal-like churches in the SBC. It's really hard to okay. tell. And other thing is like, so I'm from like a a family that went to Southern Baptist churches, but they didn't identify with the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay. And these churches... There's nothing more Southern Baptist than to disaffiliate from the convention is <laughs> a tricky thing to talk about because SBC, they may or may not be part of it, but they're a lot like each other in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I imagine that the, the showrunners to some degree wanted to kind of dilute things. So it wasn't drawing a target on a specific group's back, but was was a little bit from over here, a little bit from over here to try to. Um, I think you, you can also read things. the. You can also read the Falwell's biography and they've done most of these things that this <laughs> come out, you know, and I think there's, yeah. And I think there's also, you know, one line from that show that sticks out to me is like, there's a sign. There's a part where Danny McBride's apologizing for his sin is forgive me, God, for, you know, my sins are not me. You know, like the idea of detaching like sin from like the person yeah. is a very yeah. American type of ideology. And I love, it's, I do love yeah. that show. I'm glad you watched it. <laughs> it, it is a way to, to kind of make it easier to, uh, uh, to separate yourself from that and and overcome the, those uh, the consequences. And you remember they're things. running the country. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, that's Nathan, all. Do you have anything else? Well, uh, yeah. We don't want to take up too much more of your time. I, I just oh, okay. another thing with Mormonism is like people sometimes call Mormonism a like a high demand religion. Yeah. 
and whether this is a good or bad thing, often they say it like it's a bad thing, but I don't think it's ambiguous. It could be either way, you know. Well, I think, and and this is something that I've uh, researched a lot when it comes to the cognitive science of religion. One of the things that what we label religion does is it allows for ways for people to engage in costly signaling, to demonstrate to other people who you may not know personally, I'm a member of the group, I can be trusted, I know the standards, I know the rituals, and I am willing to engage in them, therefore I'm willing to incur costs to show you that I can be trusted. Uh, there's there's a lot of um, theories that this is what makes religion persevere, is that it facilitates greater social cohesion and therefore allows the groups that are engaged in it to survive for longer and to grow larger and more complex. And, and so the, the costly signaling is kind of the bread and the butter. The, this, these are the building blocks of these groups. And the more costly the signaling and the more numerous the more clear the boundaries. And so um, high demand religions are religions that have more ways that you are required to signal your fidelity to the group, whether that is by certain rituals, whether it's by certain speech, certain dress, uh, certain food and drink, uh, avoiding certain things, certain media. Those are all ways that you can give your group a tool to show who belongs and who doesn't. And so um, that's why uh, the word of wisdom within Mormonism is still um, so salient. It's still a central identity marker because it very easily demarcates who's in and who's not. Uh, someone who won't drink coffee, won't drink tea, won't. Um, and, and I think coffee and tea are, are probably sit closer to the surface. Not smoking is not a huge deal. Not drinking is kind of a big deal. But if somebody's like, oh, I don't drink coffee, I don't drink tea, that's weird. And so it's a way to um, to put on display your membership in the group. And so commonly, it's not for the benefit of the out group. It's for the benefit of the in group. It's so people can tell, are you good enough? Are you one of us? Are you just pretending? Because one of the purposes of this is to minimize what they call free riding which is somebody who benefits from the resources and the power that the group produces without contributing to the things that help the group produce it. And so um, free riders, you want to root out. And so if somebody's like, oh, I'm Mormon and you know, benefits from that in whatever way they might benefit from that, but then you see them drinking coffee or something like that, then you know they're, they're an imposter. They're a free rider. They want the benefits, but they're not willing to engage in the costly signaling. So I think high demand religions are groups that try to create clear boundaries uh, so that their group can have more social cohesion. It makes them more successful. It makes them more powerful. That's very interesting because it almost goes along with the, the way, like, say, Americans look at, like, say, a social safety net where it's like you have to pass these certain boundaries to qualify or to deserve these things rightfully. And it's, you know, you see this in sort of the writings of Brigham Young and things like that, where this is a a sort of, the LDS church becomes a sort of resistance to industrial capitalism moving West, you know, obviously like- For a time, yeah. Right, right. And like the laws about slavery in Utah and things like that are obviously, they're meant to push against the things, the forces coming onto them. And it, it's interesting you say that because like these, these ideas of social cohesion, yeah, they've invented a sort of safety net amongst themselves to some way obviously now it's in that you can sell mlm products to other people but before that you know the multiple <laughs> yeah. you know marrying multiple wives was a sort of social safety net you know your children were looked after if something happened or if one wife mm-hmm. was gone you know 
So it's interesting to see, yeah, there has to be some, I suppose you're right, there has to be some requirement to sort of buy into that safety net now, the way that everything's sort of meritocratic here, or supposedly yeah. meritocratic, but well, yeah, everything yeah. <laughs> sort of, it requires some type of box to be ticked, you know? Yeah, and and you, you'll you notice as the power structures shift, the uh, early Mormonism was communalistic, not necessarily communistic, but communalistic. And as that kind of fell apart, there's 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 kind of an underlying sense that this is the the true order of things. This is how things are supposed to be. And you even get that in, you know, in Acts 2, uh, kind of a communalism. But then we have the middle of the 20th century. And we, we can go back to priesthood manuals from um, the 1930s in Mormonism that were saying socialism looks like it can be a way to provide for a lot of the, the the have-nots in society, and this is a promising thing. And then you go through World War II, and now Mormons are among some of the most fiercely anti-socialist, anti-communist uh, groups because the power structures and the identity politics have shifted. And so now they have to rationalize why communalism was good in the 19th century, and now communalism is, is um, of the devil. Um, sometimes I, I want to... <laughs> when uh sometimes some mormons i want to be like you think everything's of the devil mama um because there's there are so many things that they have to say that's not us that's um what was the oh shoot schismogenesis was the uh a word that um was used in that uh, a recent book and the dawn of everything i think it was called but uh the idea that you create your identity by distinguishing yourself from the other group. And then that means of distinction becomes a central identity marker. Uh, and Mormonism does that with so much, um, just like Jehovah's Witnesses might do that with blood transfusions and things like that, um, even though they become insanely costly. Well, we want to have you come on again sometime yeah I'd be happy share to. your expertise we really appreciate it you a lot of your interests ancient and modern is stuff that we talk about a lot we don't just talk about the religious right wing we talk about just religion and politics in general also and so um i just want to thank you for coming on uh maybe we'll ask you about comic books next time i have been curious <laughs> about that because yeah, you I have a lot of superheroes my, yeah got my daredevil shirt on today <laughs> Yeah, like I, there's definitely a connection with the Bible there, I think. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, there's a, a lot of cool intersection between um, religious studies in the Bible and comic books. We'd love to ask you more yes. about that. Ask you about kinship issues too. Yeah. I was curious about. We didn't get to the kinship stuff, but I'm really curious about that and religion. But yeah, yeah. yeah be there's a lot of things to. we'd like to ask about, honestly. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, cool. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I mean, we got a lot of questions. I mean, just Utah in general is fascinating to us. So hey, I it's LDS a weird place. came but... to my door before we started this. It's Oh, really? We got I'm all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> Knocked about five minutes before we started and I told him to come back tomorrow. So <laughs> it, it's funny. Know, I've never I got had the them. book. Oh, I've, well, you're in, the, you're in the Death Star. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, I think it's, it's, it's very strange because it's, they know I'm not converting, but I mean, like they just continue, you know, and I think that's, it is very interesting the way the LDS works for it sort of seems that more implanting social cohesion in the, the youth's head than it is about anybody they're proselytizing to. 
You know? Yeah, yeah. In the in the early church, it was it was full grown adults, usually married, who were engaged right. in in the missionary work. And now it's it's uh, kind of a, a rite of passage that is also a way to um, condition them to um, adulthood it's, within uh, Mormonism. Yeah, it's a very Protestant thing where you just kind of put out the adult child and just like, well, you know, it's like a rum spring up for like the Amish or something like that, where it's before you commit to this fully, like, here's your chance to, you know, either see what, like in the case of Rumspring, see what it's like without your social network mm-hmm. or see what it's like in a world where like, you're just with someone else from your social network and everybody else who you talk to is probably not interested. You know? <laughs> yeah. Or in, in many cases, entirely antagonistic. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Of, yeah. I mean, it's a lot to push on somebody. A new <laughs> yeah, book. it is. <laughs> it is, and that's and that's a concern uh, among Latter Day Saints these days is the mental health of of missionaries, and so you'll see a lot of folks I in Utah. Think... What's that? I think it, it 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 puts them in the the mindset where they have to rely on their unit, which is the two of them, you know, and they're kind of yeah. stuck relying on each other, and that further reinforces the, the sort of dogma from the actual book and from the church. Yeah, and and sometimes that uh, that partnership can be. Uh, antagonistic itself or, or even abusive in some cases. And there are not yeah. a lot of safety nets within that framework because part of it is you need to show your man enough by going through the whole thing. Um, yeah, it's, it seems like a lot. One of my missionaries went to Taiwan, I think, which I can't even imagine. I can't, I'm the clueless American I am. I can't imagine, trying, <laughs> let alone be a member of the LDS, you know? Yeah, well, I, I went to uh, yeah. Uruguay. So uh, I learned uh, oh, okay. I learned Castellano, uh, which I, I still love that accent. But I've been uh, my previous job as a scripture translation supervisor for the church sent me all around the world, uh, and so I've, I've run into American and other um, and missionaries from other nations in all different parts of the world. And and yeah, some of those experiences have got to be just unreal. Yeah, I assume it's us and the LDS who are going to be fighting over space once we start doing stuff out there. You know, it'll be the Catholic <laughs> Church and Utah. Well, Latter Day Saints, uh, there there is room within Latter Day Saint ideology for uh, for extraterrestrial life. Uh, so <laughs> he got oh, you well, there. <laughs> <laughs> so once that's uh, once proselytization opens up out there, uh, it'll be uh, the battle will be on. That's why we have Hide telescopes in the Vatican. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. That's one I keep hearing about. Uh, they're, they're like, why does the Vatican have a telescope named Lucifer? And it's like, oh. Just pointed out that five seconds out there. of research. I mean, yeah. The, the, the funny thing is, is just the idea that the church has to be so separate from science, which is so ridiculous to me because it's like yeah. the American reactionary Catholic is so anti science, where it's like the church pays a lot of good money to figure these things out. Like there's a reason that, you know, they pay for all these things. And there's people like you who are doing translation work all the time. It's like, there's a reason the churches pay for this stuff. Like they want to know. So yeah. to like really make these things anti-intellectual seems like such a waste because there's such a rich like history of, you know, intellectualism, especially in yeah. something like the Catholic church, which is like, it's the only place where high art survived for a long time in the West, <laughs> you know, like these are things where these things were damaged, but like, these are just some places sort of kept the lights on in some areas. And it's like, to denounce these things all for like this modern interpretation seems ridiculous. So um, I, that's what makes me so interested in your work. I'm, once again, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I had a great time.
we are back from our interview with Dan McClellan. Um, big one we've been building up to for a minute. Uh, I had a good time. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I, what else can you say? Yeah. Yeah. No, there's it's a lot good. there. It's a it's a big interview, and I think that we'll definitely have him back in the future because there's a lot to cover here. Um, he obviously has some like very interesting takes on things we discussed before and after the show. I mean. And we discussed during the show too, honestly, that we haven't even gotten a chance to get to, like under all the under the banner of heaven stuff, uh, more insider knowledge of Church of Latter Day Saints, which we obviously are lacking. Um, yeah, there's quite a few things I'd like to ask him about, and like his, we didn't even get into his personal philosophy, you know. So mm-hmm. I think there's definitely future episodes lined up, but yeah, I think we had a good line of questioning, and we got to a lot of interesting stuff, and I don't know, we learned a lot, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, we got labor. I I I like this mix we have going. The labor stuff and the, the religious stuff. And I think we're going to keep on this track, like I said. Um, next up, I have that professor to email that Robert Trinity gave me the email for on uh, a more modern ILWU history. Nice. And um, I think we had a couple more in the, in the barrel here. So we will definitely be finding some in the near future. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with another episode. And until then... Have fun and the left is always dead. I am the left. I see the sign. Hey. I see the sign. Hey. I see the sign. Hey, Lord, time going now. This sign of the judgment. Hey. This sign of the judgment. Hey. This sign of the judgment. Hey, Lord, time going now. in the fig tree. Who's horse in the valley? Tell me who gonna ride him? <laughs>